One of the great truths, one of the convicting truths of God is that God has no grandchildren. Did you know that? Every generation needs to find Jesus, needs to discover God, God discover them so that he might be their father and they might be his children. Not grandchildren, his children. Many of you had family over the Easter holiday. And I'm sure if you were like me, the, uh, the presence of children and grand- grandchildren and perhaps great-grandchildren not only brought joy, but perhaps also brought some worry. We're concerned about the spiritual lives of our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, aren't we? I mean, we can bear witness, we can love, but ultimately that decision is theirs. God has no grandchildren. Everyone needs to make that choice, that decision for themselves. So I got thinking about my legacy. I got thinking about the impact of the things that I have said and done in the lives of my children over the years, wondering if anything that I said or did had any eternal impact. I'm hoping, I'm praying it did. I'm sure You're hoping and praying that your legacy will be one of faithfulness passed down from generation to generation. As I thought about uh, my concerns about the spiritual lives of those that I have influence over, influence in, I began wondering what it was like for Jesus after three years of being surrounded by so many followers, particularly those 12 disciples that were closest to him, I wonder if Jesus was a little bit worried that after three years there seemed to be so little fruit, so little understanding, so little faithfulness. Do you suppose he was worried I've spent these three years, I've done what my father asked me to do, and I'm a little concerned, Father, that these 12 in particular may not be able to do what they need to do to spread this. I'm just suspecting Jesus might have been just a tad bit worried. We're taking a step back in time now that we've celebrated Easter, going back to a Last Supper text in the Gospel of Luke. If you want to turn there, it's chapter 22. I think it's okay for us to go back because my suspicion is that in the days following Easter Sunday, in the days following the resurrection of Jesus Christ, my suspicion is that those disciples were remembering all of the conversations they had had in those three years with Jesus. And through the lens of the resurrection, I suspect that they were looking at those conversations and saying, man, was I a moron. How clueless was I? How did I miss that so completely? 
And so perhaps one of the conversations they were remembering was this conversation that had taken place around the table at the Last Supper in that upper room. Jesus, at a point in that meal, had taken bread and had passed it to his disciples around that table and said, this is my body. This isn't just a loaf of bread anymore. This is my body, which will be broken for you. He took a cup of wine, a symbolic cup of wine in that Passover Seder meal, and he passed it to his disciples, and he said, this is now the blood of a new covenant. This is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And then we'll pick up the story in verse 24, chapter 2, verse 24. Right after that bread and wine was passed, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. This is my body. This is my bread. This is my blood. This is the new covenant. And immediately a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to, the him, said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father confirmed, conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to, to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But Simon replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, He was numbered with the transgressors. I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, Jesus replied. 
there's a pattern in this conversation, a, a pattern that reveals the depth of the confusion and the misunderstanding on the part of these disciples. Jesus begins in the previous passage that we didn't read saying, in essence, I'm going to lay down my life, my body, my blood. I'm going to lay down my life to establish God's kingdom. And the disciples say, which one of us is greatest? A little bit of a disconnect there, isn't there? Simon says, I'm ready to go to prison and death. Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny you even knew me. <laughs> Jesus says, I'm about to leave. I'm not going to be around to provide for you anymore. I'm not going to be around to protect you anymore. And the disciples say, we're pretty well armed. We've got two swords. And oh, to hear the tone of voice. That's enough. Exclamation point. About that, that's enough phrase, N.T. Wright says that by saying that's enough, Jesus isn't suggesting that two swords would be sufficient for the job at hand, but that he is wearily putting a stop to the entire conversation in which at every point they seem determined to misunderstand him. In other words, that's enough says, I give up. <laughs> this is like talking to a stone. This is a train wreck of a conversation, isn't it? From the very beginning, this is my body. To Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? To the end of that conversation about how many swords will, it, will be enough to usher in the kingdom of God. Jesus is trying to help them realize their vulnerability, their need to follow his pattern of utter dependence upon the Father and the sacrificial servanthood that will bring about the kingdom of God. But instead, they resort to braggadocia and right-handed power. Jesus must have been seriously concerned at that moment about his legacy and his effectiveness for a moment, think about how Jesus might have felt. This conversation is one where they didn't get what he was saying. What is one word that might describe how Jesus felt at that point in the conversation? Call it out. Bewildered? Bewildered? Exasperated. Exasperated. Desperation. Desperation. Frustrated. Frustrated. A, a little worried, perhaps, that three years hadn't been enough, that it was going to take something else. William Barclay, in commenting on this passage, says the penalty of sin is to face not the anger of Jesus, but the heartbreak in his eyes. Perhaps there was a look of heartbreak in Jesus' eyes as they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. 
Even at the end of three years of intense modeling and training by Jesus, his closest disciples continued to misunderstand the nature of the kingdom that he had come to inaugurate and the methods by which it would become a reality. In the midst of this passage is a a couple verses, a conversation that Jesus has with Peter that I want to focus our attention on. It's verse 31 and 32. It takes place, this conversation with Jesus and Peter, it takes place within the context of this repeated failure to understand what Jesus was trying to communicate. Verses 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I am praying for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, Strengthen your brothers. Let's look at three truths expressed in that little bit of conversation. Begins, Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift all of you as wheat. Notice that Peter is addressed by his Jewish birth name, Simon. Remember, Jesus changed his name like happens occasionally in scripture. God gives him a new name. The new name that, uh, that, uh, that Simon received was Cephas, uh, translated Peter, meaning the rock. Before there was Dwayne Johnson, there was Simon, son of John, the rock. But notice that Jesus doesn't address him in his new rock name, pillar of faith name. He addresses him in his human, his first given name, a name that represents the weakness and helplessness and vulnerability that we all have before we are given a new name by Jesus. Peter is the name of God-given strength. And it's, it's ironic that uh, in verse 34, when Jesus predicts how many times he's going to uh, deny him, he doesn't call him Simon. He says, hey, rock! You're going to deny me three times before the night is over. Whiplash, the paradox of that name. But the name that Jesus is using to address him is his given name, Simon. His name full of weakness and misunderstanding. The sifting refers to the winnowing process by which the undesirable chaff of the grain is scattered by the wind. Satan hopes that, like Judas, the rest of these disciples will prove to be chaff instead of wheat. It's important for us to see and to acknowledge and to understand that failure in Simon's life and failure in our life is almost a certainty without the grace of God, without the filling of the Holy Spirit. Satan is constantly sifting us. And we are vulnerable to that. We are Simon, not the rock. Then Jesus goes on to say, again, my favorite word in scripture, but, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. (laughs) 
aren't those some of the most welcome words you have ever heard? In the midst of our insecurity, in the midst of our worry, in the midst of our weakness, Jesus is praying for us that our faith may not fail. I was reminded this week of, uh, of what that prayer of Jesus might have sounded like. In John chapter 17, Jesus starts off praying that great high priestly pray, prayer, praying for himself, and then he prays for these 12, doesn't he? He ends that chapter by praying for you and me, but in the middle of that chapter, he's praying for those disciples that their faith may not fail. And this is what it sounds like. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. That's how Jesus prays for us. Our faith may bend, but Jesus is praying for us. Jesus is sharing his name with us. He is sharing his Holy Spirit with us, that our faith, while it may bend, will not break, will not fail. Can I get a thank you, Jesus, or something? <laughs> Jesus is praying for us. And then he says something extraordinary. He says, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. The, the truth here is that failure is never the end of the story. Right? Failure is never the end of our story. He says you can turn back. What theological word does that bring to mind? Turn back. Repent. <laughs> Come back home. Turn your back on that way of life and turn and face Jesus who is praying for you. Repentance is always available to us, no matter how many times we may fail. Jesus doesn't condemn us. He does not dismiss us when we backslide. He prays for us that we might turn and come back home. Failure itself provides lessons, though. This is what he's talking about here. When you've turned back, strengthen your, your brothers. Failure provides lessons that help us to eventually strengthen others. William Barclay's comment here is that to experience the shame of failure and disloyalty is not all a loss because it gives us a sympathy and an understanding that otherwise we would never have won. One of my favorite things about living in Massachusetts for 17 years was driving by redemption centers which were not churches, by the way. 
Sometimes they were called full redemption centers. That's even better. You take your, your empty Coke can in there and they'll give you five cents. They'll take your trash and give you money. <laughs> How much better is Jesus? We turn back from failure. We repent and he redeems us. That school of hard knocks is oftentimes the best way to learn the lessons of life, especially the lessons that we can pass on to others. Failure is not the end of the road. <laughs> Failure is an opportunity for God to redeem us, to strengthen us, to teach us valuable lessons, to be able to pass on to other people. As I was meditating on this brief snippet of conversation, this week I realized that in this conversation, Simon is a placeholder for each of us. You can insert yourself into Simon's place around that upper room table. You can insert your name instead of Simon. He's a placeholder for us. Simon's life is the life that each one of us have lived with both great blunders and great faithfulness, right? Say, I'm Simon. Go ahead, I'm Simon. <laughs> I have to admit it. Or maybe Simone. <laughs> so this conversation that Jesus has with Simon the Rock is really a conversation that he's having with me and with you. All of us are prone to the same misunderstandings and fears and temptations and missteps that plagued the first disciples of Jesus. Just as Jesus promised to pray for Simon, so he prays for us. And we might call the kind of prayer that he's praying for us a prayer for inner healing. A prayer for inner healing. A prayer for inner healing is a prayer that invites Jesus into our past injuries and failures, into our past memories and wounds. It's a prayer that listens for the effect of sin on one's life. What has my past done to my life? It's a prayer that identifies areas where I am cut off from God. It's a prayer that sounds an awful lot like the one that James recorded in chapter 5 of his letter. He says, the prayer, offered, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. A, a few weeks ago I mentioned this word, raised up. It's one of those words that appears in the gospel. Lame people are raised up. Dead people are raised up. People get up. The Greek word egero is used here and in, the, in many of those places as a mini-resurrection. So James is probably saying faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will resurrect them. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. It's one thing to know that God has forgiven you for your sins. 
It's another thing to realize that God also can bring healing for the damage caused by sin. You know that old illustration of the father that drove a nail into the post on the front porch every time his wayward son sinned and something horrible. Finally, the son comes back home and repents and confesses and asks his father to forgive him. And so the father goes out and pulls all the nails out of the post. But what's left in the post? The holes. That's just one of the truths of life as a fallen human being. But Jesus is praying for us and can turn the holes into strength, can turn the holes into compassion, can turn the holes into experience that we can share with other people who have similar holes in their life, right? God can bring inner healing to us beyond just merely forgiving us for what we've done. Rather than beating ourselves up over our failures, let's recognize that Jesus is in the praying business and Jesus is in the healing business. All that he might strengthen us so that we might strengthen somebody else. Lynn shared a story with me this past week, a story written by Rachel Naomi Raymond in her book, Kitchen Table Wisdom. Don't you love that name? kitchen table wisdom. She tells the story of a tradition in her family as she were growing up, as she was growing up. They, they would uh, have a table set up in their home year round and on that table was always a puzzle of some sort that was being built. You just stop by for a few minutes and put in a few pieces. Uh, the, the thing about it was though is they put away the picture on the front of the box so nobody except for the person that put it out there knew what the picture was. They didn't know what the picture was going, the puzzle was going to be, what it would eventually look like. And so Rachel as a very young child working on one particular puzzle thought that the dark puzzle pieces looked like scary bugs. And so she hid them under the sofa cushion. <laughs> eventually squirreling away over a hundred puzzle pieces in the sofa. Finally, her mother found them and went on to complete the puzzle. And Rachel writes, as piece after dark piece was put in place and the picture emerged, I was astounded. It was quite beautiful, a peaceful scene of a deserted beach. Without the pieces I had hidden, the puzzle had made no sense. Life provides all the pieces. When I, accept, when I accepted certain parts of life and denied and certain parts of life and denied and ignored the rest, I could only see my life a piece at a time. The happiness of a success or a time of celebration or the ugliness and pain of a loss or a failure I was trying hard to put behind me out of sight. But like the dark pieces of the puzzle, these sadder events, painful as they are, have proven themselves a part of something larger. I am surprised to have found a sort of willingness to show up for whatever life may offer. 
It may look like a scary bug. It may look like a hopeless failure. It may look like a wound that will never heal. But in the larger context, not only of our own life, but also the grace that God pours out through his Holy Spirit, those holes, those wounds, those failures not only can be healed, but might be the kind of thing that God can use to strengthen somebody else. So Jesus, sitting around that large table in the upper room with his disciples, wringing his hands under the table because he didn't want anybody to see just how worried he was that maybe this whole enterprise was going down the tubes before his very eyes, instead prayed for them. And he prays for us. Jesus is able to use even our failures for our faith formation and ministry preparation. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Jesus is able to use even our failures for our faith formation and ministry preparation. So what's the next big holiday when the family's gonna be here? Fourth of July maybe? Memorial Day? Mother's Day, oh, oh, talk about a holiday. When the family gathers for Mother's Day, we can choose to look at the holes, the failures, the disappointments in our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. Or we can choose to remember that Jesus is praying for them. I was reminded this week of Tony's testimony from a few weeks ago. The fog of COVID had put him in a position where the devil was tormenting him making him question whether he was saved, making him question whether anything had been done that was good. But if you recall, Tony gave such thanks and praise to his wife and to his family, his children, who were praying for him. And Jesus was praying for him. And undoubtedly, he is better prepared now to strengthen us and others than he was before. So would you take the hand of somebody that you're sitting next to and let's bow our heads together. Imagine for a moment that the hand you're holding is the hand of Jesus. And it really is because that person is part of the body of Christ. <laughs> Jesus is here in the people that are surrounding us. So as you hold that hand, imagine Jesus there holding your hand around that upper room table, praying for you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we live on this side of the resurrection and not before. We thank you that you have poured out your Holy Spirit in our lives so that we, we have some understanding of what you said and what you meant and what you are doing and how you are using us. 
Lord, we thank you for the fact that we are disciples who perhaps more often than not get it right. (laughs) More often than not understand what the real power of the kingdom is. It's not swords. It's the sword of the spirit, the word of God. It's, It's not my strength, my power, but the Holy Spirit. But Father, we confess that we continue to fail from time to time. We don't think it through. We don't get it right. We don't fully understand. We respond out of the the flesh. We get swept up in the ways of the world. And from time to time, we fail. But Lord, we thank you that the faith that you have caused to live in us does not fail. And we thank you that you are praying for us. And we thank you that you continue to strengthen us even through the failures. And we thank you that you have placed us in a family. You have placed us in a congregation. You have placed us in a neighborhood. You have placed us in a school. You have placed us, placed us in a workplace. You have surrounded us with people who need to have their faith strengthened. You have surrounded us with people who need to have faith fanned into flame. Lord, you have given us opportunities, countless opportunities to be your hands and feet. So Lord, we pray that you would continue to heal us. You would continue to be the God of redemption in us. That you would continue to open our eyes to the needs around us. You would continue to help us strengthen our brothers and sisters. And Lord, we give you our children. Do what only your Holy Spirit can do in their lives. We give you our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, We thank you for the opportunities that we have to influence them for the kingdom. But Lord, we also recognize that only you can give the gift of faith. So we entrust them to you. Lord, we thank you for your steadfast love in our lives. Help us to love you more, a God of healing the God of mercy, the God of forgiveness, the God of strength. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.